This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. Coach Jen from Ocala, Florida. And I'm Kayla Benny, also from Ocala, Florida. And you are listening to the monthly breeding and horse sales episode on Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for Thursday, January 27th. This episode is a special episode of Horses in the Morning every fourth Thursday of the month brought to you by myself and listeners like you. Good morning, Horse World. Hey, you made it to the fourth Thursday of the month on Horses in the Morning. That means it's time to talk sales and breeding. Uh, uh, Of horses, that is. So, Jen, on today's show, um, I'm going to kind of go back to the basics here. The reason why I started this show over a year ago when I called Glenn up and said, I have an idea and I really <laughs> think you need to listen. And he was like, oh, geez. <laughs> I was like, I really wanted to bring the horse world a little bit closer together. Um, you know, explain the ins and outs of buying and selling horses um, because they really are actually two different worlds. There's the the selling aspect and the buying aspect. Almost anybody who's interested in horses is going to acquire a horse at some point, you know, whether it's being given a horse, leasing a horse, uh, buying a horse, but not everyone sells their horses. You know, it's kind of like you buy a family member. You, you actually get to choose your family member and you love them and you never give them up. Right. Um, but sometimes the fact of the matter is you, you need to sell them because they're just not working out in your program. Um, and personally, I didn't even think that gap was that big, but, um, I've been on a little bit of a shopping journey this summer Uh oh. and <laughs> let me just tell you, I might be a little more naive than even I thought, um, <laughs> <laughs> buying an Amy friendly horse. It's harder than you think. And, um, I was literally on the search for a perfect unicorn uh, for my business partner, and I've run into some stories. So I'm gonna we're gonna chat about these stories, and then later on in the show we're gonna have Dr. Mark Donaldson on to talk to us um, about vets and farriers working together to solve hoof problems, because like they say, no hoof, no horse. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Yeah, I I love it when we get to have the vets on and I get to pick their brains. They hate they they hate me. In vet school they have a picture on the wall and say that says stay away from this one. Yeah. Avoid at yeah. all costs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm pretty much the same way and as Mark knows cuz we used to spend hours together when I'd bring horses up for him to look at um and I would travel over an hour and a half to go see Mark Donaldson specifically because he's just such a brainiac. And um, I really, really enjoy his company. I don't know if he really enjoys mine, but um, he, he uh, I feel like I was the 21 question person. I was like, <laughs> okay, so um, what does that mean? And if we did this, what would that do? And then, okay, so hear me out. And he's, And I I think I actually got him to do a few things that even he was surprised that we were doing. Um, And maybe they worked, maybe they didn't. But um, I think, you know, being open-minded is is definitely key. And and Mark Donaldson is that person. Well, I think particularly in the diagnosis department, you have to have equal measure of scientific method, eliminate things as you go and thinking outside the box because it takes both because sometimes the the problem is multi-layered or very complex that's where you need that scientific method you have to eliminate things in a logical order and sometimes the answer is out of the blue and it's really that's the problem sometimes (laughs) that's where it lies so if you don't have any of that 
you're not going to be as good a diagnostician because I think treatment and diagnosis are two very different skill sets. Absolutely. And I think that also, you know, you just explained even being a good horse person in general is listening to the horse and, and listening to like, let them help you diagnose, you know, what the problem is, whether it's a training issue, a, um, you know, a nutrition issue, uh, a vet issue, a farrier issue, you know, listening and letting things kind of unfold and being open-minded and having a really good team around you, you know, with your trainers and your vets and your farriers and stuff like that, um, is what makes a good program personally. Um, that's my opinion at least. (laughs) (laughs) And you're sticking with it. (laughs) And I'm sticking with it. Gosh, darn it. Um, but that being said, you know, I think also having a good team behind you when you're looking at horses to buy is also a very, uh, important, uh, factor, you know, and not being shy about talking to a trainer. Um, and maybe if you don't have a trainer accessible, bringing a friend along that has your best interest. I mean, it's, it's like going to a doctor. Sometimes you, you need to have outside people to ask those 21 questions about the horse. Yeah. Because frequently when you're, when you're the buyer, when you're looking at horses, it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget to ask the obvious. Yes. In those cases, it's, it's so simple. It's like, you know, I should have asked that. I didn't even think of that. And I love going horse shopping with people. I love horse shopping, but I love going horse shopping with other people too. And I always tell them I'm the one that's here to say, to tell you to say no. Right. It's easy to say, yes, I'm not going to talk you into a horse. I'm never going to say yes, buy that horse, but I will tell you to not buy a horse. Exactly. I don't want you coming to look at any of my horses with buyers. Thank you. <laughs> I will not show up at your. I will not show up at your barn. Uh, yeah, um, and because it's it's not like you said, it's you're like getting a family member in. I yes. wouldn't pick your spouse out for you, but I might tell you that this person that you're dating is like. Oh, did you notice? You know, red, red flag, red flag. <laughs> I'm going to point out the red flags. Yeah, uh, yeah. So. It's such a, di- you're, I never thought about that, but you're right. The buying process psychologically and emotionally is so different than the selling process. And even drilling it down a little bit further, the selling process for uh, a professional like you is different than the selling process for somebody like me who has a horse, a much-loved member of the family, which may just need to get a new address for a bazillion different reasons, but the emotional process for me is going to be very different from you than yours. You have Freddie over here. He's been in your program for nine and a half months. He's got the skills that you needed him to get. He's showing the potential you thought he would, and now it's time for him to move on to his per, his, his his forever home. Perfect person. His yeah. perfect person. So yes. it's going to be very very different. But I think the commonality there is. All of those people need to have that team, like the trusted friend, the professional, the doctor, the farrier. Do you ever have a farrier look at a horse? Because you talk about pre-vet, pre-purchase vet exams all the time. Do you ever have a farrier look at a horse before you buy it? Um, I have actually... um Yes, I have actually. Um, but it's it's gonna sound bad. It's when I'm being cheap and I don't I'm not gonna actually vet the horse. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, maybe my farriers in the area, you know, like it's it's more circumstantial. It's it's like, okay, the horse is affordable enough. I'm not gonna vet the horse. I know the people that are selling the horse, or you know, I know enough of a background history. Mm-hmm. I feel comfortable taking the risk. But my farriers in the area, hey, can you just stop by so-and-so's barn and just, you know, look at look at the feet and the biomechanics and how it moves. Now, my farrier happens to have been a vet in in his past life. Um, 
That doesn't happen very often. (laughs) So I'm a little spoiled in that, you know, like, okay, so we're not doing flexions and stuff, but he looks at the horse biomechanically and says, you know, okay, that horse isn't going to be a nightmare to shoe. It makes his life easier. Uh, My life. uh, Oh, so he's there to say no as well. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he, you know, but I've only done that once or twice, you know, normally, and that's something that I don't think people actually, that's a really good point. People don't think about the farrier aspect of it. They, they ask a vet, you know, to rub their crystal ball and say, is this horse going to last? Well, we don't know that because they can do something tomorrow in a field. Um, and, and then be a pasture puff for the rest of its life or their x-rays could be extremely ugly and they go on to jump grand prix go run around rolex uh or the event formerly known as rolex yeah they didn't they didn't read their own x-rays um and so we you know it's a little bit of a crapshoot but again that's why you have a team and you uh Let's just say horses maybe aren't the best investment if you want a sure thing. (laughs) (laughs) Today's the anti-selling show. We are here to not sell you a horse. Um, Buying horses and having horses very much is a crapshoot. If you can't afford to lose it, don't buy it. Because they're a luxury. Let's face it. They're for for us horse people. They're a luxury a luxury that is basically essential to our our uh, health and happiness <laughs> and sanity. <laughs> so we're not in jail. But um, <laughs> they are a luxury. Yes. A hundred percent. And, um, you know, I most recently, I have not purchased a horse in a very long time without the intention of either a resale or it's for myself at a more elite level. Um, and, I find it actually a lot harder than buying something for myself Um, because when I'm buying a prospect or a, um, a horse for resale, I'm, I'm buying an idea that I'm hoping will pan out. I'm not trying to buy a sure thing. And so buying a horse for an amateur, you are buying, trying to buy a sure thing. Um, and it's still a crapshoot, you know, um, we most recently, we actually, so I thought I found a perfect unicorn and in many ways, the mare is a perfect unicorn, but we got her home. We set her up at a, at the farm in Maryland by herself. Um, she had a retired horse and a mini with her and she hated it. She absolutely hated being in such a quiet environment. She was a show horse used to a busy you know, at least 10, 10 horse barn. Um, and she thrives. So we sent her back down and she will not put a foot wrong at, at the farm in Florida. You send her back home. She's spooky. She's irritable. She gets way too attached to her field buddy. And so it's, you know, she is a unicorn, but she, in that instance, you know, in that situation, she was not, you know, she was unhappy and, and so sometimes trying to make things work also is not, you know, conducive to to a relationship because it becomes an abusive relationship. <laughs> well, I think I think you've hit on something right there. And it's something that way too few people think about when they are searching for a horse for themselves or a client or whatever. You need to take into consideration the horse's entire existence when you go to look at it as something you may purchase. If you go and you you ride this horse, oh my gosh, this is the perfect horse. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get the pre the pre-purchase exam. It's going to be fantastic. You went and looked at that horse and that horse was living in a show barn where there's a ton of activity and there's 35 horses there and they get fed four times a day and a night checked late and they get pajamas every day and they get turn out and if it starts to rain they get brought right back in etc 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 and when you get the horse he's going to go to a mid-priced boarding barn that has a total of six horses none of whom ever leave the property Um, they all live in the same field together they're brought in and out one at a time 
it's going to be a completely different existence for that animal. It might not be the same horse at all in very short order. (laughs) And I've seen that happen again and again and again. The, 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 the way that horse is cared for, it's, it's management has so much to do with the horse that you ride. And that mare that you just described is a perfect example. Yeah. And she, and again, you know, she will not put a foot wrong in, in a show barn atmosphere, you know, but it's a little bit of an insecurity because horses are creatures of habit, right? Right. Right. She grew up with this habit of, yeah. Okay. Little intricacies may have changed here and there, you know, as she's gone maybe from a barn to another barn, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the consistency of, of more activity, things going on, she never had an opportunity to feel insecure and to feel the need to get attached. Right. Cause to there was the horses horse. coming and going constantly. Yes. Right. And there and are a lot of horses like that. If they live in a, if they live in a small group of the same horses all the time, it's like, Nope, this is my group. We must not separate safety and numbers right. versus that same horse living in a situation where there's lots of horses around, but they don't develop that close daily bond. That same horse can be quite like, oh, cool. I'm okay with this. I've got friends around all the time. They keep changing. I'm good with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and on top of that, you know, uh, not taking that into account, because I didn't even take that into account when we bought the horse, you know, like, okay, it's come from some show barns. It's going to go live the life of luxury. It's going to hack out yeah. and jump maybe two foot three. Yeah. Um, and it's going to have the best life ever. Well, maybe she wants to do that, but she wants to still do it in a show show barn. Right. Isn't setting. that interesting? What we perceived as the perfect life. Yeah. To that mayor, she said, N- no, I'm, I'm a city mouse. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Not a country I am not mouse. A country mouse. <laughs> yeah. This, this wild outback that you sent me to <laughs> with deer and I'm by myself. Like, it, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a shell shock for them as well. But, you know, and that's where trying to tie the sales with the buying aspect of it too, you know, I wouldn't even call the people that I bought her from and been like, you sold me this kind of horse. No, I changed her schedule and, and you can very clearly see that it it does not suit her. Interesting. And then when we replicate the schedule, she's back to being, will not put a foot wrong. Doesn't even look at the cows across the street when she hacks because she knows she's going back to her barn filled with horses and, you know, and she can hack out alone. She can hack out in a group. But when she was alone with just one other horse and that mini horse who doesn't really exist because he's like 30 and blind. So like he's just a a little a seeing eye dog, you know, (laughs) he's he's over there and they're like, yeah, whatever. Um she was on high alert all the time and starting to spook and starting to just act really irrational. Um, so again, like, you know, that's where like, I've had people call me, you know, that have bought horses and they're like, the horse is doing this. And then you've got to try to piece together. Well, what did you change in their schedule that, you know, like not trying to put it on the buyer or the seller, but like, okay, let's work together. So what, what has changed to make this horse act this way? Because something has clearly changed because when it was in my program, it didn't offer to do that or, Oh yeah, it, it would do that every now and then. Um, but this is how I handled it. You know, uh, yeah, it spooks at deer, but if you hear the deer coming and you face the tree line for a second, let them see it, then there's no reaction. Um, you know, or no, they never spooked at deer. Well, it's because there was a 30 stall barn and she knew that it, as well, long and there as were she no could get deer back around. to her Way too much <laughs> yeah. activity. Just, just no deer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I will say also buying for, um, an amateur lady, the, the biggest thing that I found is, you know, everyone says that it's an amateur friendly horse. and you're like really is it and so i got really good at asking would you put your grandmother on this horse there you go would you put your mother on this horse and then they'd be like yeah and i'd be like okay next question do you like your mother (laughs) (laughs) 
I didn't say mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, I exactly. Mother. I didn't. <laughs> do, how much do you like your mother? <laughs> <laughs> Would you put your favorite second grade teacher on this horse? Exactly. There you so, go. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and obviously you hope that they answer, uh, honestly too. Um, but I think that, um, it's, you know, when, when I'm buying a horse for myself, I know there's also situations that I can handle. And when, you know, you're buying for, for an amateur, you know, there's a lot of scenarios that you're like, okay, so how does the horse, like if, if, for some reason she gets stuck on a business call at the barn. Will that horse stand in the cross ties for 45 minutes? Yeah. You know, will that horse tolerate going back into its stall for 15 minutes and then being pulled back out to finish getting tacked up? Or is it going to throw a temper tantrum that, no, I already went in those cross ties. I'm not going in them again. And not um, all, not all horses thrive on that kind of thing. And it's, yeah. it is a good idea to ask that kind of stuff because that's the real world that the amateur horse lives in, especially if the amateur horse um, is not in a training program. When you have the amateur horse that's in a training program that essentially the amateur shows up and rides it X times a week, that's going to be a slightly different scenario. But yeah, you're right. That It's like, you know, I'm going to take you away from your friends at a time of day that you don't typically get taken away. I'm going to ride you right before dinner. I'm going to... Um, tie you to the horse trailer where you're going to hang out at the horse show all day long and your ma- your neighbors are going to come and go and you're not going to be hanging with your favorite friends at the barn and all those things just add up in a hurry. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's wild to the going and you're taking an amateur to try these horses. And it's also about the experience when when they're trying the horse. Um, I am a very people person. Like I love chatting about my horses that I'm representing, um, you know, so that I can paint a, a picture for the potential buyers to one. I'm kind of vetting them as well when they're there going, you know, this is how this horse, you know, handles this and then kind of getting their reactions. Um, oh, well, I don't like that. Oh, well, then you might not like this horse. Um, you know, you might not like uh, how this horse only likes to stand in the cross ties for it's very tolerable up to 15 minutes after that. You know, so you're not going to brush your horse for an hour <laughs> a day, you know, <laughs> um, or this horse doesn't even like to be brushed. Uh, so don't, don't you come near it with that, with that curry comb. Cause, uh, gonna it's going to, it's going to whip you in, in the eyeballs with its tail. Um, and, and things like that. Like I'm also vetting, vetting the people, um, you know, for instance, uh, my business partner, the lady I was looking for with the horse, um, I had the perfect horse for her under saddle that was already in my program, um, that I was representing for sale. And she's like, why, why can't I, I try this horse? And I said, well, you would not like him in the cross ties. Like he, he would not enjoy you and you would not enjoy him. And sorry to be blunt, but he would end up driving you nuts eventually. Cause he's, he's mouthy. He likes to put things, uh, put the cross ties well, in his mouth. Fuss he likes, yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and like, he'll stand, he'll stand the whole time, but he's gonna, he's gonna put things in his mouth and, and that's going to drive you nuts because you like the soft, delicate brushings and the and the leading them out. And like you go to hand graze him, he's going to want to power walk around, and it's just not going to be enjoyable under saddle. A thousand percent. You know, I I did a video of this horse because I was trying to show exactly how quiet he was, and I cantered around, dropped the reins, and did a little dance and whoop de wooed with my arms and uh pretended I was climbing a rope and then grabbed the buckle, jumped a jump, landed and said, whoa. And the horse halted without touching anything. Like, you know, he was so quiet under saddle, hacked out, you know, could go buy cows, could go out alone with group. Um, but, but he's a little bit of a boy in the cross ties and, yeah. you know, he's just like, Hey, look at this. Can I put this in my mouth? I'm going to go over here. Oh, look at that. And, you know, and just a little bit like, like a five-year-old boy. And you're like, knock it off. Stop that. Don't do that. Don't put that in your mouth. Get back over here. You know, um, like 
So it it would drive her because I know her nuts. Well, that's and, that's the point point where you have to know your client. Yes, and you have to be very honest about your client's needs and desires because what they need and what they want are often different. Yes. <laughs> right? Because we all want, want, you know, you know, we want this horse and someone who knows us well as, and, and is helping us find a horse usually knows it's like, mm, yeah, they want that, but we have to find something close enough that they fall in love with it, but far enough away from that, that they get the right horse because we all want to marry Prince Charming, so to speak, when we're seven years old. But, you know, we get to be 21, we realize we don't want Prince Charming at all. But, yeah, that's very interesting how that whole process goes through. And, again, you need the team. You have to have someone who's helping you find your horse, which is hopefully someone who knows how you ride really well. It's oftentimes your trainer. Uh, sometimes it's two separate people, but hopefully your trainer your coach, your riding instructor, and the person helping you find a horse have clear lines of communications. And speaking of which, I think it's time for us to get our guest on and talk a little bit about the clear lines of communication that hopefully can be between vets and farriers. So I'm so thankful that we actually were able to get Dr. Mark Donaldson of Unionville Equine Associates back on with us to chat about vets and farriers working together about hoof and lameness problems. So welcome back, Mark. It's been a while. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I thought we'd talk about this because, uh, uh, as always, I, I usually share all my mistakes. I've been practicing long enough that I've made so many of them that I thought I could share my mistakes so other people don't make them. How does that sound? It <laughs> sounds perfect. They're not mistakes. They're learning experiences. <laughs> Thank you. That's much better. I like that. I'll use that next time. I've had lots of learning opportunities. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, let's just dive right in. You know, it's... It can be a little bit of, I think, turmoil, vets and farriers, you know, maybe not always seeing eye to eye, but it's really a beautiful thing when everybody works together because, like they say, no hoof, no horse. And so, you know, we need to keep the horses sound from the bottom up. And so I think this is a great topic. Yeah, I think... Um uh, when it, when it goes well, it's wonderful. I, I find it like, I, I like working in teams and working with groups of people to accomplish a, a common goal. It always feels better when you can do something with a group and, and get the job done and then do it by yourself. And, and, uh, as a vet, having, getting to work in a, in a group, uh, is a, is a unique opportunity. So I'm fortunate where I live, there's tons of wonderful farriers and I've learned a ton from them. Um, I think the the first thing that um, I'll uh, start with a mistake is that sometimes I've seen my colleagues uh, try to direct a situation through a trainer or owner, which kind of puts everyone in a bad position where a vet says, you know, I think you should probably do this with your horse's feet. And then the owner or trainer goes to the farrier and says, hey, this is what my vet said should be done. And it sets things off like in a... uh, on the bad foot, so to speak. Um, so whenever I have a, a problem that I think might benefit from a change in, in shoeing, I usually ask the owner or trainer, Hey, can I call your vet? I'm sorry. Can I call your farrier? And, uh, that gives me an opportunity to share what I've seen. And more importantly, maybe to hear what they've already, uh, already tried or what they've been dealing with and get some context for their point of view on a horse's feet. Um, Absolutely. I mean, so do you like, let's take it back to a little bit of the buying aspect of things. You know, we take x-rays of the horse's feet and everything like that. Um, Recently uh, I had a client that bought a horse. We took, we did a regular vetting, but we actually went back and compared and took more balance films. Is that something that you typically do, you know, during the vetting, you know, do you look at the balance of the hoof or are you looking more for arthritic changes, things like that? Like how do you tie all that? A a little bit, a little bit of both. Like I definitely look at it from a context of, you know, uh, arthritis or navicular problems, whatever the most common things are. But 
yeah, I also look at the confirmation of the lower limb and how it might impact what the goals are for the horse. And there, mm-hmm. you know, certain things that one sport, uh, that a confirmational problem might not impact one discipline might really be a problem for another discipline. So I will comment on that. And part of that is because the buyer may have the veterinarian, for example, sorry, the farrier, look at the radiographs and make a comment about, you know, this horse has a negative palmar angle or a broken back pattern axis or open balance or something like that. And so I want, you know, I want the buyer to be aware of what we're seeing, not just from a um, pathology standpoint in the foot, but also from maybe from a confirmational standpoint and how that might impact uh, the potential that the horse has or lack of potential. And then there's the things obviously you can't see on the radiographs sometimes with the nature of the quality of the and shape of the hoof wall and some distortions that maybe can't be seen radiographically that only can be seen externally. Absolutely. And with, with that, you know, okay, so there's corrective shoeing we can do and things like that. Um, and you're having the conversation with the farrier, but maybe there's, you know, a little bit of pushback, um, from the farrier. They don't want to do this. Like what are some things to create an open dialogue, you know, with, with the farrier, you know, and use their experience as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So I used to think that earlier in my career that I had to have all the knowledge to recommend a certain way or type of shoeing that would be beneficial. And I don't think that's necessarily true or even wise that the vet approach it that way. I try to approach the farrier by communicating what I saw and felt, uh, the diagnostics that I did, where I think the problem is. I always have a rough idea of what I would think shoeing would help in my back of my mind in case they say, well, what would you do or what do you think should be done? But more frequently, I'll explain the concepts of how we can help the horse. In other words, I think the horse has an injury to its deep digital flexor tendon. I'd like to reduce tension on that and then have a discussion about how that maybe could be done. And I might make some some suggestions, but if it's a good dialogue, a farrier, and they're usually pretty free with me to say, no, Mark, that, that won't work with this horse because it has this issue with its foot. And so they obviously look at the whole problem from a totally different perspective. And some of the things that I might want to do might not be wise or possible. And so then we have to have a dialogue about, okay, well, how can we accomplish this concept um, with what we have to work with? And that's the fun part. If it works well, then there's a back and forth of, well, Mark, your idea isn't going to work, but what about this? And they'll say, okay, that sounds great. Or, well, I'm not so sure that'll achieve what we want. What about this? You know? And so to have that back and forth and dialogue of what we're trying to achieve or what I want to achieve and what the fair can do, given what he has to work with, that's the nitty gritty of a, hopefully a good relationship between farrier and veterinarian. And that really only happens if there's, if there really is a true dialogue a back and forth. And that's why I hear, when I hear about a prescription being made at prescription is basically just telling someone what to do. And I don't see how that would ever be, you know, successful, um, uh, because the, the fair has so much to add to the problem-solving process, but to just tell someone what to do for for a veterinarian to do that, I think is really unwise. And not, and maybe that's where sometimes things start out poorly if that's the approach it's taken. Um, and I'm sure there are some uh, times when a farrier thinks, "Well, what you're suggesting just doesn't make any sense to me," and that can be hard too. If what I'm doesn't seem in, intuitive. That that can be a struggle as well. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I think the basis of any good relationship, whether it's, you know, uh, a client with the vet, a vet to farrier, you know, any sort of team, you know, even outside of the horse world, open communication and dialogue is extremely important. Um, You know, I'm lucky personally to have, you know, you're one of the vets that I use up north. Um, the, um, you know, I have my farrier. You guys know each other very, very well. And you guys, I'm just, 
I'll mention something to both of you and then you guys have an open dialogue and then all of a sudden my horse is fixed, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I wish it was that easy sometimes, but, um, you know, but just that open dialogue is just, ex- I, I believe extremely, uh, important and, um, that egos, you know, don't, don't get in the yeah. way as yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, that see. never happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That never happens. So uh, I'm, I'm going to be that person. I'm going to ask one okay. question too many. So you have a client comes to you with horse has a hoof problem or a, or a lameness problem that involves a hoof that you can say to yourself and to your, to the client that's like, Oh, that's we're pretty darn sure that's caused by what's going on with how the farrier is trimming, uh, balancing, right. shoeing the horse. <laughs> right. um, how do you deal with that conversation? Because that. sometimes it's, what they're what they're doing with the horse is oh that's not what this horse needs. Needs right, right. I, well, one thing I can say, yeah, that 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 is a hard situation. Um, uh, I one of the things that, that's helpful is uh, looking at radiographs. Like I like to look at radiographs with farriers. Some of them have more interest than others, but I do think that um, the farrier benefits from seeing internally what's going on to make a modification to what's the way the horse is being shod to be beneficial. So if I'm able to meet with the farrier uh, face-to-face in front of the horse and take some radiographs, they don't have to be extensive, usually two views of each front foot or just two views of the foot in concern to look at the balance maybe of the foot to say, hey, this is what's going on internally and this is what we see externally now that you've seen this, do you think some modifications can be made? And frequently, I think they uh, benefit from that knowledge to look at that in front of them, to look at the radiograph right there and look at the foot and say, yeah, okay, I think I can do this or that. And that's an educational process for everyone because sometimes I'm, sometimes I'm surprised at what I see. Usually I'm like, I think I have an idea what I'm going to see, but but periodically I'm like, wow, it's not what I expected. Mm-hmm. And maybe everyone's a little surprised. Well, that, but for that the farrier pro- to do the same, and I do it all the time, right? But yeah. the farrier doesn't like get an opportunity to do that very often right. to radiograph the, to see the radiographs of the, of the horse he's working on, some well, that, more than others. That prompts the next question. What percentage of the time when somebody comes to you with a horse that you're doing a lameness exam on and you say, okay, we need to investigate the hoof and you do x-rays, what percentage of the time do you take an x-ray and then you look at the x-ray and then you look at the hoof, the external appearance, and the two don't line up? What you see on the inside and what you see on the outside shouldn't be in the same hoof. How often does that happen? Uh, I I think infrequently. Uh, Yeah, I think usually the... And I think that's because the, the hoof wall usually sort of ref- what's going on externally in the hoof wall sort of reflects what's going on internally, uh, usually. Not, not always. I, I still have to say just, just recently I was really surprised when I radiographed a foot that I was, saw something I was, just didn't, didn't expect at all. There was a sudden change in the, in the horse's feet, and I really couldn't have expected or predicted that. But I think for the most time, the, what's going on externally when you look at the hoof wall reflects what's going on internally. But I think having that information through a radiograph can really help a farrier a lot, especially if um, maybe they're not doing um, what they even would like to do because of concern about what is going on internally. Like sometimes we're, uh, I think farriers can be cautious about what they're doing because they're concerned that, that they may be doing too much of something and, uh, or, you know, or too little mm-hmm. because they don't have, the imaging to make bigger changes. And sometimes when they see that, see, okay, I have room here to work. I can do this or I can do that. I think that can be helpful. And also it, it, it's rather than me saying, Oh, you're, you should be doing it this way. Or I think this thing needs to change. It's nice for us to look together at what's really going on and then make an assessment rather than just two people looking at it, something, you know, it's like two people looking at a piece of art and saying, well, I like this or I don't like that. But if it's literally black and white on a radiograph, it makes it a little bit easier to negotiate or 
um, to come to a consensus about what needs to be done. So when you have a client who has a farrier that's going to work with you as a vet, do you often have the farrier come and do work on the horse at the clinic so you can have a before and after, or is it usually you send them home with instructions? Um, yeah, if I, if I have a lameness evaluation in my clinic and I think that, you know, it ends up being in the foot and there's some changes in shooting that need to occur or could occur, then I'll call, usually just call the farrier and say, Hey, can I send you some radiographs? This is what I found. This is what I saw. Open up the dialogue. Find it. And, and the interesting thing about that is I may suggest something that they've already tried and they're like, well, no, we've tried that. Or we tried that, and, you know, the horse didn't tolerate it or, or we can't do that because of you know, such and such management issue. So that's where it opens up that dialogue. But I also will, if the farrier is one that I've worked with or the, if a, you know, mutual client meet them at the farm, if I can, and review the radiographs with them and maybe repeat the radiographs while after they've trimmed the horse, but before the shoes applied so that they can see what they're accomplishing. That's also really, you know, useful for the for the farrier and the vet to say, Hey, this is what we have now. Uh, they do the trim, take another radiograph, um, look at it immediately and say, Hey, this is perfect. Or gosh, you know, farrier will say, I think I can do some more. I can make mm-hmm. some bigger changes here. We still have room to work or I'd like to see this a little bit differently and then might do a little bit more work and then maybe be done there or take another radiograph. And that's not common that we do that, but I think it really can be educational for everybody. So, when you are doing going through this process and you have the farrier and the veterinarian working together, do you more often have changes in what shoe or how a shoe is applied, or do you more often have changes in the balance of the trim before or instead of a shoe being applied? Uh, uh, both. Both, because sometimes uh, Some, yeah, sometimes I guess it's both the, things, right? Yeah, it, it, sometimes it's both things, and especially if uh, if there is room to make some changes in the trim before the shoe's applied, that accomplishes a lot right there, rather than sort of synthetically altering things. If if something can be changed with trim that's safe and comfortable for the horse and the farrier's in agreement with, the change the trim first and then apply whatever. Uh, change in the in the shoe itself or modification of the shoeing uh, from there. So it's, that's a good question. That's usually a, usually a combination of of both. Um, and it may be the first time that the it's possible. It's the first time that the farrier has seen radiographs of the horse's feet, and they may intuitively already been. And I, I see this a lot. The farrier will intuitively look at the foot and make alterations in the trim that are wise and appropriate just on their intuition about having that foot in their hand, looking at the confirmation, looking at the distortion of the foot, so forth. A lot of good farriers will will already be accommodating what they know is probably present internally or what they just know from experience helps those based on the, the foot that's in front of them. Well, it's like recently, you know, you, my farrier, Todd, who you know, um, was doing just that. Like, I feel like you're describing, um, like a couple weeks ago, we, we got this horse in and he has, I mean, the horse's name is Ducky. He has feet like a duck. Like they are just long, like platypus type, like, and they're, you know, mildly, you know, scary looking, but the horse is sound. Yeah. The horse is doing its job. He's been sound for a while. You know, there's a certain way you have to shoe the horse for sure. Um, and he was like, I really want to make this change. And everyone's like, do not change anything. Right. And he's like, I just, <laughs> right. I really, and he's like, but less is more. So like, let's not change it too crazy, but I really love some balance films. This is what I'm starting to do. And we took some balance films and then the vet looked at them and said, you know what, keep doing what you're doing. And, and you can actually be slightly more aggressive about it because we have more to work with, um, than even we thought, you know? Um, so I think, you know, again, it goes back to open dialogue. Um, it goes back to 
keeping um, yourself informed and and being open to to having that conversation and using other tools, you know, farriers don't walk around with x-rays in their trucks. Um, so they have to rely on the vets, um, and vice versa. You know, you guys don't stand underneath the horses looking at the feet all day, every day. Um, you know, you probably need some more ibuprofen for that. (laughs) Um, so, uh, I think, I think it's just having a really good team. Um, yeah, definitely makes a world of difference but what what happens when maybe the the team doesn't want to work well together like how how <laughs> yeah. do you you know that's not always possible to to have a farrier I'm not even going to say a farrier or vet but like you know like one of the teammates isn't working quite so well doesn't play well with others how do you go about that yeah, I mean, the, the, the situation you just described, I was thinking you had a, which is really good, is that you had an owner, you, a trainer, owner that is willing to pay for some radiographs, which is great to make the horse better. You had a vet who's like, yeah, this makes sense. I want, and I know how to do that and I'm willing. And, and a farrier who's like, yeah, I want to see those and work with you. So that, I think a lot of it is desire. So there's desire on all three parties in the situation you just described. You know, you have a desire to, to help the horse, the farrier wants to look at the radiographs and they're working together. So I think a lot of it is desire on all parties to, to, to accomplish that. And usually people have the desire to do things they're good at. And so I think with a vet and uh, farrier that they have to have the um, interest and ability um, to, to work on feet. And, and I don't know that every um, vet does has that desirability. And I also know that there's probably some farriers who don't have as much interest in uh, problem solving or therapeutic shoeing as they do in more routine work. So I think some, both vets and farriers are more open to that. I don't know if it's always a problem that can be fixed. You know, you're thinking, right. oh, how can we because it may be that for some horses, a, a different team needs to form, you know, yep. um, if, if that team isn't working well together, then maybe there just needs to be a different team for, for that horse, you know, it's just kind of hard, but if there needs to be a change in vet or change in fair to kind of get a, a situation, I've had certain situations with clients, not necessarily shoeing related or whatever, but where it just wasn't going well. I wasn't getting through or we weren't successful with handling the horse's medical problems. And then my colleague steps in and takes over or has a better relationship with them. And well, what do you know? Things are going better. They have a better dialogue. And so I think, I think sometimes things have to, you know, have to change yep. if the parties aren't working well together. <laughs> I hate to say it that way. But <laughs> well, I, I think, no, it's a you know, reality. Yeah. Somebody's getting fired. Let's just put it out there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, or maybe just for that horse, you know, I don't, you know, maybe, and that's hard too, you know, but I have seen stables like that where, uh, just recently where there wasn't a good situation with that one horse, you know, there's a dozen horses in the stable and they're all going well with this one horse, a problem. Well, and different pairs stepped in and everyone was humble enough to say, Hey, that one pair is just going to do this horse. And everyone was willing uh, everyone involved was willing to accept that situation and, and it, it worked, but there requires a little bit of humility on everyone's part for that. Yep. Well, and I think too, you know, like I have another example is I was working with a farrier recently that I don't know very well, but this one owner wanted to use them. Um, they're good friends outside of, of, uh, working together professionally. And, Um, I, you know, was having some other issues, strength issues that I was talking to the, a vet with down here and she was looking at him and she's like, they were stifle issues and she was looking at his feet and she goes, you know, his toes, I think for him are just a little too long behind. And I'd really like to see them a little bit shorter just to help out with, with helping strengthen the stifles. Um, cause he was catching them 
quite a lot. And I went to the farrier and I'm so used to having such an open dialogue with everyone. And and it's so hard coming from a third party because it's like the telephone, you know, game where Mm -hmm. the vet said it Mm -hmm. one way. I may have said it slightly different or maybe a little abrasive. And, you know, I tried to be as diplomatic as possible of, hey, you know, this is what is going on with the horse. Um, I had a vet come out, you know, we were chatting and we both kind of noticed, you know, as his cycle gets a little bit longer, his toes get a little longer than he is comfortable with. So is there a way, you know, like ask their, them, you know, don't tell them how to do their job because mm-hmm. they, mm-hmm. they okay. yeah, you know, because um, yeah. yep. that's also, you know, if someone came in and told me how to train a horse, uh, you know, maybe suggested something, that's one thing, but to tell me, you know, I might get a little abrasive too. Um, so, you know, so I'm like, Hey, you know, is there a way we can bring these toes back? And, um, so that when he's heading towards five, six weeks, you know, before he's due, we're not, these problems aren't arising. And he looked at me and said, you know, I know how to do my job. And I said, I am, very well aware that you know how to do your job. I'm just saying these are my problems, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I, and I would appreciate that you, you know, listen to these problems and maybe there's a way, or you mm-hmm. say, Hey, no, there's not. This is the way the horse grows his toes. Like if we take him any further back, we're going to cripple him. You know, mm-hmm. maybe let's try this, you know, like, and, and again, have that open dialogue, but it is really hard to, when it's coming through the telephone game and things get interpreted, you know, with the motions and wording. And sometimes it's very uh, easy to misinterpret something as well. You know, I'm rapping on them and whatnot, but I don't know. I think that we all just need to let our egos go. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's hard. I I certainly, I've been on the other side of that as well. It's, It's very difficult to have someone, uh, you know, uh, suggest that you do your job differently, you know, yep. or, or even, or even just question, you know, uh, why are we doing things this way? And like, well, why are you questioning what I do and how I do it? And, and that's a hard, that's a hard, uh, way to start off the conversation, you know, or a response to, to get and, and way to start. So, yeah, that's, that's really difficult. I mean, the only, like I said, the only thing you can do differently is to, um, you know, to ask the, the vet to talk to the farrier. And I don't know whether it's different coming from a medical professional to say, hey, this is what I was seeing in the horse and this is biomechanically what I'm concerned about. And, you know, and whether that's a different, uh, why that conversation sometimes goes better. Uh, I think it, I think it can, maybe because it's a direct, um, because it's a direct communication um, rather than an indirect one, which is what you're saying in the telephone game, you know, they're, they're getting a, unfortunately getting sort of an indirect, the farrier's receiving an indirect communication about a problem. And, uh, if they get it directly from the, the vet whose concern it was, or idea it was, or, you know, was problem solving that. But so it's, uh, I, I try to be very careful, um, even to recommend, not to recommend things, but rather to say, Hey, can I, you know, can I have a, have a discussion with your farrier? Cause I, I've been in that situation before. And, and, uh, the other problem with that is then the, the, the farrier, unfortunately will be a little unhappy with the, the vet, you know, for, um, for the, the inference that they can interpret all that, that they weren't doing something right in the first place. Right. And that's sometimes how it's received. Yeah. And, uh, the, then all of a sudden we're all in a, you know, in, the wrong <laughs> in <case>. a tizzy. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, Mark, um, if people want to contact you, um, where can they get a hold of you? Uh Unionville Equine Associates. And uh you can find us uh, uh on the on the web at ueavet.com. Unionville Equine Associates. Oh, fantastic. Yep. 
And thank you so much for coming on. And I'm going to have you back on again because your discussions are always so insightful. Um, so again, that's ueavet.com. Uh, Mark Donaldson, super vet uh, up in Pennsylvania, freezing his bum off right now. But uh, we appreciate everything that you do. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Look forward to come back. Awesome. If you ain't met one by now, you're bound to sooner or later. He says one thing and he means another, but hey, he can't help it. He's a horse trader. Horse trading. Well, it's a laissez-faire. Let the buyer beware. Horse trading. They tell a low-down lie with a sincere stare. Horse trading. Well, if they're talking in circles and the deal ain't square, he's a master in the fine art of persuading. Horse trading. Look here, boys, I got a pretty good rig. He's got a working trot and a short jig. He come off of the ranch where he's born and bred. The last of his blood, that old stud's dead. He's a little bit nervous inside the ring. Kids out back and ride him with a string. Of course now, his feet needs trimming. Yeah, it looks to me like he's been foundered. Well, you seen that big skeeter bite on his neck? Yeah, they probably aced him. He's a little fresh, we ain't rode him much lately. Yeah, eight seconds or less. He's got a pretty little head. Yeah, if you don't mind the looks of an ironing board. They say they just wormed him. Yeah, now you're trying to worm me. Well, they say you can ride him with any kind of bit. Yeah, as long as you wire his mouth shut. They say they showed him NCHA. Yeah, which means not coming home again. Or was it A-Q-H-A? Yeah, which means apt to quit hauling around. Horse trading. Well, it's a laissez-faire. Let the buyer beware. Horse trading. They tell a low-down lie with a sincere stare. Horse trading. Well, if they're talking in circles and the deal ain't square, he's a master in the fine art of persuading. Horse trading. Boys, here's one of a kind He's as right as rain If I'm lying, I'm dying I'll make you a price He's worth every penny I wouldn't need him selling But I got too many He's King Ranch, Wagner, Doc Bar Bread They tell me he's smarter than Mr. Ed I tell you one thing He's a good rope horse Yeah, that's how you have to catch him Well, he'll jump right in your trailer Well, that's good Because I seen him jump out of yours now he's got all the wind in the world. Yeah, it's just coming out the wrong end. <laughs> he's good at opening gates. Yeah, you brush up against one, he kicks it right open. Well, they say he runs AAA. Yeah, which means always awkward and aimless. Well, looks like he's got a little Arab blood in him. I don't believe I'd have told that one. Now I say he'd be a good cutting prospect. I believe that's the first thing I'd do to him. They say they showed him NRHA. Yeah, which means never really had ability. Horse trading. Well, it's a laissez-faire. Let the buyer beware. Horse trading. They tell a low-down lie with a sincere stare. Horse trading. Well, if they're talking in circles and the deal ain't square, he's a master in the fine art of persuading. It's a horse trade. Come on now, you wear out a new truck trying to find a better deal than this. Ah, don't lose him over a few dollars. If it's not just like I said, you don't own him. I guarantee him gentle and sound. What do you mean, why didn't I tell you about that navicular? Why, I thought it was a secret. Come on now. There you go. Thank you, Dan Roberts, for putting it all in perspective. You can find his music online. Dan Roberts. I couldn't resist. Sorry. Oh, I had fun being the person who asks one question too many of the vet. <laughs> uh, at least it wasn't me this time. <laughs> Glad to help you out. Glad to help you out. <laughs> <laughs> Making me look good. 
Well, I think that was a great show. Thank you so much for uh, co-hosting with me this this time. And um, the- it was too much fun. I might not. I might not let Glenn do it anymore. <laughs> That's okay. We don't need him. Boys are silly, anyways. <laughs> Girls run the world, so girls run the world. Um, right. Well, where where can people find you and stalk you appropriately online, Kayla? Oh my gosh, I think I'm everywhere. But um, you can find me on Facebook under Kayla Benny or Selkuth Sport Horses. That's S E L C O U T H Sport Horses. Um, SelkuthSportHorses.com. I have a TikTok under Kayla Benny, which are usually just silly videos of my horses or me doing something extremely embarrassing because um, I'm far too old to actually be on there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you can find the links to today's guests and show notes at HorsesInTheMorning.com. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for horses in the morning and you can have all the horse radio network shows with you wherever you go with our free app for iphone and android go to your app store and search horse radio network and thank you to the listeners and remember riding like life doesn't need to be perfect to be wonderful give your horse a pat after every ride 